Good morning. So great to see you. Glad that you are here to worship with us today. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 3, James 3. If you're a guest with us today, welcome. We're so glad that you uh, are here. We're continuing our sermon series entitled Living Faith, where we are exploring the book of James and what it looks like to follow Christ in real life. Uh, your actions during trials, your treatment of those who are less fortunate, uh, your willingness to not play favorites, the role that money plays in how you live your life, uh, these areas and many more. James is quite interested in followers of Jesus living out their faith, and he leaves really little room for excuses uh, for those who don't measure up. In fact, last week we looked at the bold statement that he made at the end of chapter 2, faith without works is dead. See, James can tend to not mince words, and you often feel like he's all up in your, your business a little bit. And just as a heads up, uh, today is no exception. Uh, perhaps you've seen the movie entitled A Christmas Story. And if you have, you will recall this scene it was an interaction that took place in the schoolyard uh, when a character by the name of Flick was challenged with the ultimate triple dog dare regarding the effects of a frozen flagpole. And what seemed like a normal playground banter among boys left one of them uh, in a bit of a sticky situation. Uh, it's amazing how if we are not careful, our mouths can leave us in a horrible mess. And the reason for that is because there is no sin struggle quite like that of the tongue. It's in a class all by itself because it is a battle that everyone fights. Not everyone is an alcoholic. Not everyone struggles with lust. Not everyone falls victim to greed, but I would suggest to you this morning that there are very few people who can successfully manage the muscle in their mouth. And my guess is that in a room this size, there are some who are living with hurt and pain because of what someone said to you growing up, or possibly what someone said as recent as yesterday. Our words matter. And here in chapter 3, James wants us to understand that our tongues tell us something about our spiritual condition. He actually touched on this in chapter 1, verse 26, where he says, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. See, it was there at the end of chapter 1 that James gave us some indicators of genuine faith, one of which is this notion of a controlled tongue. And now in chapter 3, he's going to kind of double-click on the subject and give each of us an opportunity today to take a look in the mirror. Uh, thank you for that, James. 
Now, while we won't spend a lot of time uh, today on verse 1, it is worth noting that James introduces this passage with a word of, a word of warning to would-be teachers. Look there in verse 1. He says, not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive stricter judgment. He's making the point that there is a danger, a risk, if you will, associated with one's engagement in the teaching ministry of the local church. And the reason for that is because the stakes are quite high. Uh, when you consider the standard to which a teacher of God's Word is held, but notice that James holds himself to this standard. He uses the pronoun we. He's not talking about false teachers here. He's talking about brothers. He's talking to fellow believers. And those who teach and preach need to be mindful of the weight and the influence that is attached to what they say because words are at the heart of one's teaching ministry. And so to have an unreliable or an irresponsible tongue as a teacher is at the very least unhelpful, but it's potentially detrimental to the body of Christ. And so with that said, uh, I do want to emphasize that I believe James intends for the application of these verses that follow uh, to extend well beyond those who are called to teach. In fact, next uh, we'll see that he wants us to, to understand that speech is an area of life by which every single one of us sins so easily. Look there at verse 2. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able to control the whole body. To put it another way, if you can control the tongue, you can control every other area of your life. Uh, the tongue is like the master switch. So somewhere in your house, there is a breaker box, right? A whole panel of switches that turn on the, the bedroom light and the kitchen light and the living room light. And then you have one master switch that shuts it all down at once. And the tongue is like the master switch. If you can control this one, then you can control all of the other lights in the house. Again, James is wanting us to understand that the tongue in our mouth indicates something significant about our spiritual condition. And so to help us understand this more fully, I want to unpack three realities that I believe James underscores for us in this passage. The first one is this, reality number one, our tongues are powerful. Our tongues are powerful. Let's look at verses three through five together. Now, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies and consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. So in these verses, James is making the point that although your tongue is quite small, it wields incredible power. 
It's the conclusion that he draws there in verse 5, and he gets there by using three, I think, spot-on illustrations, a bit, a rudder, and a spark. Well, first of all, James says, think about the bit that you put into the mouth of a horse. Now, for those of us who are not equestrians or didn't grow up around horses, a bit is a small metal instrument that fits into a horse's mouth, and it works together with the bridle and the reins. And when it's used properly, it results in a, a large creature, uh, often with another creature sitting on top of him, being steered and moved with relative ease. And there's a disproportionate comparison between the size of the bit and the size of the animal. Small bit, big horse. And then he says, think about a ship. It has a tiny rudder, at least in comparison to the size of the vessel. And that rudder is used by the captain, and regardless of the weather or the winds, it's used to direct that ship's course and to take it to its intended destination. And then at the end of verse 5, he says, now let's think about the rampant forest fire that began small and quickly spread out of control. You fill in the blank here. It only takes a spark to what? Get a fire going, right? How many of you remember that oldie but goodie? Pass it on. Uh, number 287 in the 1975 Baptist hymnal, right? It only takes a spark to get a fire going. If you don't remember that, maybe you will remember this. In November 2016, a forest fire engulfed much of the East Tennessee towns of Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg. There were at least 14 people who died, 150 were injured, and more than 2,500 homes and businesses burned to the ground. Thousands of acres of forest land were destroyed, and the fire was believed to have begun by teenage boys starting a campfire. A fire that began no more than three or four feet in diameter quickly became a raging inferno. And friends, if left unchecked, your tongue, like a fire that gets out of control, can burn the whole house down. So you have a small bit, a tiny rudder, and a single spark. And James is making the point that they each produce big results. A small object can have a significant impact. You have this, this little tiny piece of flesh tucked away in your mouth. It's hidden away. And from it, you can accomplish all kinds of things by what you say. You can encourage or you can criticize. You can give thanks or you can grumble. You can pray or you can gossip. You can communicate clear expectations to your son about his grades. Or you can tell him that if he doesn't get it together, he'll never amount to anything. For the average adult, it weighs about two ounces. And while it has the capacity to do good and to speak truth and to convey peace and to offer praise, 
it also has the capacity to leave an awful path of destruction. Hurtful words, derogatory words, exaggeration, manipulation, lies, flattery, anger, slander, gossip, condemnation, ridicule, sarcasm, boasting, shame. The list seems unending. It's, it's like a minefield. And why is it that it seems impossible to keep from stepping on one every single day of our lives? It's because, as we'll see next, number two, our tongues are untamable. Our tongues are untamable. Let's look at verses six through eight. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. See, the tongue is not only powerful, but James wants us to understand that it cannot be brought under control from a human perspective. That's exactly what he means in verse 8 when he says, no one can tame the tongue. He's just told us in the verses above that the tongue has the ability to set the mountain range on fire. And so he says, speaking of fires, the tongue is a fire. And not only that, it sets the whole course of your life on fire. And it's a world of unrighteousness. He calls it a restless evil and describes it as being full of deadly poison. Now these verses here in the middle of this passage can be a bit hard to interpret and understand and get our our mind wrapped around. And so here's what I would want us to take away. Reality number one in the the point up above was neutral, meaning the power that the tongue contains could refer to both the positive and the negative, good things, bad things. But when we read from the second half of verse five on, we see that our tongue, for all the potential that it may have, is a real problem. In fact, he he paints a picture of the damage our words can cause that is 100% pure evil. The the influence of this tiny member is a destructive wildfire. It's a cosmos of, of sin. And it is so strategically connected to the deepest core of our being that it stains and contaminates all that we are as a person. Now, as a believer, I'm called, you're called, to be holy and pure. Yet when I lay my head down at night, if I have any regrets, more often than not, They come from what I've said that day. This often plays out in the context of a nuclear family, right? The people that we live with see us at our worst. 
But Brooke Hills, let's not be surprised if and when we see the tongue cause harm within a faith family. See, you're probably pretty unique if you're someone who has never caused hurt toward or been hurt by a brother or sister in Christ because of something that was said. Well then, James kind of lands the knockout blow when he says to the fine, upstanding, church-going Christian that your tongue gets its fuel from hell itself. Wow. Well, now it makes sense why you've said things you never thought you were capable of saying, right? Because the tongue is not only destructive, it is demonic. Watch this. In Genesis 3, Satan appears in the Garden of Eden, and what does he do? He begins to speak. John 8 tells us that Satan is the father of lies. He speaks. Revelation 12, he is the accuser. He speaks. Yes, our hearts are depraved. Yes, Jeremiah tells us that we have wicked hearts. The heart is deceitful, no question. But with regard to the words that come out of our mouths, there is an evil influence at work in our lives. You know, I I think I would give just about anything to have an undo button for my mouth. So have you ever been formatting a a document, typing an email, and you you got well into it and realized, ah, that just didn't come out right? And you wanted the opportunity to to back up and walk it back and and do it over again. And is it that undo button a lifesaver? There are times I've clicked that thing 20 or 30 times, undo, 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 undo. Oh, if I could go back in time and undo some of the things that I've said. I think I would give just about anything. Over the years, the people that I have hurt and insulted and mocked and disrespected, the lies that I've told, the gossip that I have spread, As I worked on this sermon this past week, I became freshly thankful for Jesus and the gospel. You know, for reasons that are curious to many, former President Richard Nixon decided that he would record every conversation that took place in the Oval Office. It was those recordings that ultimately became the smoking gun that forced him to resign from office. Can you imagine if all of your words were recorded and played back for all to hear? Even just the words from this past week, let alone several years. The psalmist poses a question to us in Psalm 130, verse 3. He says, Lord... If you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? Now, there are a lot of questions about the Bible I don't, I don't have the answer to. 
but I feel pretty confident I have the answer to this one. Who could stand? No one. Certainly not me. And I hope this doesn't burst your bubble today, but certainly not you. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be terribly off base if in this sermon my emphasis was on the wisdom that we would all find in talking less and listening more and how we all need to start saying nicer things. Amen, yes, could not agree more. Uh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. But that really is not the point. And it's not what any of us need most right now. Because if I have countless stain marks on my life that are, are the result of my sinful words, my solution is not simply to start talking nice. What I need is a savior. And what I need is someone to cleanse me. I need help. I need someone who can take my words and delete them and bury them and forget them and not hold them against me and replay them over and over and over. I need Jesus. And unfortunately, Today's text is not a, a feel-good text, but it is one that shows me my desperate need for grace. Ironically, when Jesus was paying the penalty for my messed up mouth, do you know what Isaiah tells us? Isaiah 53, verse 7 says, he did not open his mouth. Jesus, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for my hateful, selfish, foul, deceptive, wicked words. And then he rose again and he lives today so that I might be saved and made to look, and check this out, sound more like him. Oh, I hope you feel that today. And I hope that today you will run to Christ and cry out for mercy. Say along with the prophet Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. But James doesn't stop there. In verse 7, we actually find ourselves at the circus of all places. <laughs> Our condition is so bad and so out of control that we don't even measure up to the animal kingdom. He says every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind. Man can make tigers roll over and elephants can get up on their hind legs. Monkeys can play basketball and dolphins can jump through hoops. But peer into the church on a Sunday morning and see how people indwelled by the Spirit of God can have the complete inability to control their words. We've managed to successfully tame and train wild animals, yet our tongue is untamable. The reality is on most days, our mouths are not reluctantly holding back, are they? 
Now, on most days, our mouths are working overtime to muster up something sinful to say. I heard one pastor say it like this, our mouths are like a twitching finger on the trigger of a gun. We're not sorry in the moment, we actually can't wait to say it. You may be sitting there this morning going, why is this hitting a nerve? What's what's going on? It's because in one way or another, this this is all of us. So our tongues are powerful, our tongues are untamable, and third, James wants us to understand our tongues are hypocritical. Hypocritical, verses 9 through 12. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. So James says, you've got one mouth, and yet you are using it for conflicting purposes. There's an inconsistency, there's a hypocrisy going on here, and it just doesn't add up. In Psalm 51, 15, David prays, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. But James knows that's not all our lips are declaring, doesn't he? Because he says, with the tongue we bless our Lord and with it we curse people. I think sometimes we, we can come to James 3 and we can mistakenly think that he's really just wanting me to clean up my language, right? I mean, I need to cut out the dirty jokes. I need to lose the four-letter words. And to be very clear, okay, immoral talk, profanity, crude joking are all clearly condemned in Scripture. That's not up for debate. But I don't think that's primarily what James is referring to here. Look carefully at what he's saying. He's saying, with the tongue we praise God and with it we curse people. What kind of people? People who are made in God's likeness. Think about why we believe murder and abortion are so wrong. It's because those who are killed are image bearers of God. Listen, whether a person is a Christian or not, whether they are like you or not, whether they are respectful of you or not, they are important to and of value to Almighty God because they were made in His image. And the inconsistency that James is pointing out is that if we worship God and then disparage another person... We are both praising and disparaging the same object. I'll I'll say it another way. We can't worship God out of one side of our mouth and then drag his creation through the mud out of the other. Now, he's not saying that people should never be corrected or rebuked or even reprimanded if need be. That kind of speech has its place. And we know from Paul, from Ephesians, that It's to be spoken in love. 
But sinful, demeaning speech doesn't square with the life of a Christ follower. Let's think for a minute about the impact of all of this on going strong to an unbelieving world, right? We've been talking about how we can strive to live as faithful gospel witnesses in the regular rhythms of daily life. And what James is talking about here in chapter 3 extends beyond the boundaries of your household and even your church family. Think about it. If it was love and grace expressed by our Heavenly Father that drew us to Himself, wouldn't it make sense that He would want to express those same things through our lives to help others see the beauty of the gospel? In 1 Peter 3, Peter tells his readers that they're to stand ready to give a defense for the hope that is within them. But he goes on to say that the demeanor and the tone that should accompany our gospel conversation is that of gentleness and respect. The Apostle Paul, he holds our approach to these kinds of conversations in high regard in Colossians 4 when he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Friends, our words matter as we interact with an unbelieving world. How we respond to poor customer service as a Christ follower. How we engage with parents of the opposing youth baseball team. How we speak to or about the coworker who holds a different political view or sexual orientation than we do. In every instance, our words matter. And James says you need to be very, very careful that you don't walk in here on Sunday to sing praises to God and then walk out into your week only to curse those made in his image. It was in the book Pilgrim's Progress that the character talkative was described as a saint abroad and a devil at home. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if our tongues made us out to be saints on Sunday and devils on Monday. Well, finally, James brings it kind of full circle there at the end of the passage by posing a few rhetorical questions. They might have gone something like this. So what are you picking off that fig tree? Olives. How are there not figs? But I see you have figs. So where did those come from? A grapevine. Really? And next you're going to tell me that that salt water in your bucket came from the, the fresh water spring. What James means to communicate is this. Like ought to produce like. Let me put it in terms we'll all understand here, okay? You don't get a beef taco at Chick-fil-A. Just like you don't get a chicken biscuit at Taco Bell. Chicken places produce chicken biscuits. Taco places produce tacos. Like produces like. And what my tongue says 
reveals what my heart contains. And the tongue's relationship to the heart is, is really undeniable. But I would also point out that it's often quite uncomfortable. It was Jesus who said, the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Dennis, I know I gossip. I know I've got a short temper. I know I'm a grumbler. And the problem is not in your mouth. Scripture tells us it's, it's in your heart. And so simply saying, mouth, do better, won't solve the problem. Not if it's in the heart. If you go to the ER this afternoon and, and tell them that you are experiencing shortness of breath... I'm not a doctor, but I think I can guarantee that the doctor will spend little to no time examining your nose and mouth. Even though those are places where your breath comes out, he's quickly going to move to checking out major organs like your heart and your lungs. Why? Because he's concerned about a more serious issue. The same is true with our tongue and our heart. So the tongue is powerful, the tongue is untamable, and the tongue is hypocritical. It's interesting that there are no real clear imperatives in this passage, meaning we're, we're really not commanded or instructed to do anything here. The closest thing might be in verse 10 when James says, these things should not be this way, this blessing and cursing thing. We might conclude that he's telling us, stop doing that, right? So what then is the treatment for a troubled tongue? What are we to do about this problem that plagues all of us? In these last few minutes, let me briefly commend to you three encouragements that I believe would be right responses to a text like this. First, and most importantly, come to Christ and get a clean heart. We've said that this passage was going to function as a mirror for our lives today, and so would we be willing to acknowledge before God in some way or another, this this is describing me. And then would you ask God to show you where the trouble spots are? And as he does that, we then need uh, to go back to Psalm 51 and say along with King David, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. It's a prayer that might sound something like this, Lord, wash my stained heart clean. Lord, cleanse me deep within. Would you remove the dirt and the grime and the filth that is there because of my sin? And God, would you give me a new heart that aligns with yours? Because a transformed heart will transform your talk. Well, next, for some here today, perhaps many, your response may be to reach out to someone 
to say I'm sorry and to seek forgiveness. It could be a spouse that you have hurt deeply with your words. It could be a child, a parent, a co-worker, a friend, a fellow church member. It could be something that you said years ago or on the way to church this morning. And it might go something like this. You know, when I said fill in the blank and actually fill in the blank, when I said that, that was wrong. And I know I hurt you. My heart wasn't right at the time. My words were not honoring to Christ. And I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? Say, I'm sorry. And then finally, for all of us, a response that is always right is to deposit God's word and depend on God's spirit. Every day. Because again, the the spiritual health of your heart will directly inform the Christ-likeness of your talk. Spend some time in Psalm 19 later today or this week because David understood this connection. In verses 7 through 11 of Psalm 19, David talks about the value and the effect of God's word in his life. And then he makes a seamless transition and and connection. He asks for God to cleanse him of sin, and then he lands in this place in verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You see, God's word has a direct effect on your words. You need a place to start? Read the Proverbs. There's one for every day of the month. Uh, You finish those this month, start over and do it again next month, right? Because in that book alone, you will find well over 100 verses that deal with our speech. And then ask God by his spirit to take his word, apply it to your heart, because that's where the work needs to happen and bring about change. James says, no one can tame the tongue. But let me leave you with this hope today. What man cannot do is possible with God. And if you are a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit who resides within you has the complete ability to superintend your speech and give you self-control so that your troubled tongue might be tamed, treated, and used for God's glory.